Hey, we continue our series in the book of Job, looking at Job 32 to 37. We again welcome those visiting here and online, and if you turn to page 5, you'll see an outline for the sermon. We will read selected verses in Job 32 to 37. Beginning in Job 32, verse 1. Hear now the word of God. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends, because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Chapter 33, verse 1. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Verse 13. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds. Verse 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread, and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. Verse 23. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Verse 26. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. Chapter 34, verse 20. In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. Chapter 35, verse 12. There they cry out, but he does not answer, because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. Chapter 36, verse 5. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. Verse 15. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Chapter 37, verse 1. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. 
verse 5. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. Verse 14. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Verse 24. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Loved ones, so far the reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word. May he bless it to us this day by his Holy Spirit. Loose lips sink ships. Any World War II fans out there? This came out of the days of World War II, and there were posters with that sign on it, meaning beware of careless, unnecessary speaking. Or how about this? Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. That's not a proverb, but this is. Proverbs 21, he who guards his mouth and keeps his tongue keeps himself from calamity. You're thinking that really applies to us, it does, and really to the book of Job. Finally, Job's three friends and Job are done talking. Job, at the end of chapter uh, 31, had become kind of defiant. He had spoken too much. And God, in his grace, is restraining Job from talking anymore. And isn't that a miracle of God's grace in our hearts too in sanctification when he stops us from talking too much? Today, we learn in Job 32 of another person present. Kids, did you know that there was a man named Elihu there along with Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar? And Elihu wants to tell us something. Now picture this. Maybe you're at a meeting. Maybe a church meeting some of us have been at. Where people continue to repeat what's already been said. And you think, can we move on? Not another person saying the same thing again. Elihu doesn't want to do that. He wants to advance the discussion. He wants to say something that hasn't been said. And like David Strain says... He does some practical apologetics. Four speeches, six chapters, and strain, strains out for us, I think, the main three things he's answering. Elihu is answering Job's complaint that God is unjust, that God is silent, and that God has left us alone in our suffering. That's the thread through these chapters. First, Who is this character, Elihu? These are some of the most challenging chapters in the whole book. (laughs) This is not easy. So, when you go to your soccer game for your kids, when you're out to eat and you see something, what do you often notice? Have you picked up on this? Have you looked around at the mall? How many people are on their phones? It's like all over the place. We are so distracted. We cannot be distracted and possibly make any progress in these six chapters today, and that means me included. What we have here are two completely different opinions on Elihu from very well-respected 
pastors and commentators, and maybe even in this room, you have some who say, Elihu is a false prophet, a clown, opinionated, and continuing the same argument of the three friends. Richard Belcher is among them, and I love Belcher. And I'm not using these names to name drop. I want you to, if you're curious, look into these guys yourselves. On the other hand, you have commentators who say Elihu is right. John Calvin, Christopher Ashe, who's probably been my favorite more modern commentator, D.A. Carson, maybe you've heard of him, really respected, Howell Jones, who himself was mentored by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. What do we make of this? Those who say he's right teach us that he is like an Elijah or John the Baptist figure, that he's actually preparing the way for the Lord, the Lord who will speak in the next two chapters. And then there's others like Derek Thomas who say, I think overall he's right, but he gets some things wrong. I tend to think he's mainly right, Elihu, but let's see going forward. Look at his genealogy in verse 2. He is told, or we are told, of where he comes from in a way that the friends, we did not get this background from. He is the son of a man whose name means God blesses. He's a Buzzite. And you know what the family motto of the Buzzites are, kids? To infinity and beyond. <laughs> Buzz Lightyear, I'm sorry. Toy Story. But for real, in Genesis 22, Buzz is the real brother of Uz. You can't make that up. They are the sons of Nahor, Abraham's brother. So is this genealogy telling us that he comes from the region or the family generally of Abraham? Is this telling us that he has something to say that's more dignified than the others? Possibly. He's younger than the others. He's been present listening really well because as he speaks, he quotes or paraphrases the other friends and Job continually. He's not saying what the friends are saying, and he's also not saying exactly what Job is saying. He's not rebuked by the friends, and Job never interrupts him. And God doesn't correct him. At the end of the book, He's not criticized by the Lord. Others would say he's not praised by the Lord either. There you go. He's engaged in three battles. Those of you who like war, think of a battle on three fronts. He's engaged with Job and Job's battle with God. And in that, Job is at fault. The battle between the friends and Job. The friends are at fault. They're saying things they shouldn't say. And then there's Elihu's battle over against Job and the friends where he wants to maintain God's honor against them both. So he's all over the place here. Four speeches, and they're very long-winded. He's been called Endless Elihu. Get to the point already, you're thinking. To the point of Endless Elihu, all of God's people want to say, I think, oofda. Have you heard that phrase? Meaning, I'm exhausted. This is a long set of speeches. And hopefully I won't repeat the same error this morning. He's compelled to speak. Why? Because he says the friends haven't actually 
answered Job's concerns. He's so filled with words, he's like a wine bottle bursting that's about to just let loose, he says. He says, I'm not going to flatter. I'm not going to say what people want me to hear. And he also claims authority. Very interesting. Not of his own, although he mentions his own opinion. But in chapter 32, verse 8, he says, My wisdom comes from the one who made me, from the one who gave me breath. And he rightly says, wisdom doesn't just come with age. It might. But if it comes as you get older, it's because of the Spirit of God giving it to you, not just because you're getting older. This is really important because he's claiming divine inspiration. He's claiming to be a prophet of God. What does he say? He burns with anger. Four times it says that in chapter 32. His anger, Howell Jones says, is a righteous anger. It's not perfectly pure. He's not God. But it's like God's pure anger. His anger is directed at first to the friends. And you know why. Because the friends are saying it's automatic. You sin and you get punished. Instant retribution. The friends have no compassion for Job. And he's rightly angry with the messages that we've seen those three friends speak. But do you notice as well in chapter 32, who else is he angry with? He's angry with Job. Secondly, we see Elihu on God's justice. He's angry with Job because Job was righteous in his own eyes and justified himself rather than God. He's saying, Job, there's no way you can be as innocent as you claim to be. Job, you're more concerned about your own reputation and vindicating yourself than God's honor. That's where Elihu is drilling down. Now, how do we make the distinction here between Elihu and the friends? This is really important in your reading of Job. And here I want to quote again Howell Jones. Here's the distinction. The friends said that Job was suffering because he sinned. Elihu says that Job has sinned in his suffering. Entirely different message. The suffering that afflicted you, Job, has become the occasion for sin in your life. So I want you to listen to what I'm saying, Elihu says. I get you, Job. You're claiming that God is unjust, and you're claiming that you shouldn't be dealing with this. But I want you to know, Job, God is greater than man. God would never do any wickedness, chapter 34, verse 10. Job, I want you to know that in suffering, all of us can be tempted to do what you're doing, can't we? We can be tempted to allow our suffering to completely fill our horizon. So that's all we think about. And we think about God through the lens of our suffering rather than looking at God and looking at our suffering in light of him. What happens then? God becomes small in our vision. And Elihu is intense in these chapters. But I think intense to the point where sometimes he may say things he shouldn't. People are going to disagree on this. What does he do wrongly? Chapter 33, verse 9. 
he seems to put words in Job's mouth here. Job never claimed to be without transgression. Chapter 34, verse 35. He seems to say Job is kind of a stupid fool. I don't think that's the right way to put it. And he is young. It's hard to read tone, but it seems the tone is a bit over the top. He says at one point in chapter 34, verse 3, I have the skill of a gourmet chef in the presentation of my argument. So I am like Wolfgang Puck. I'm just laying it out for you. I'm not sure that's the best way to put it. Timing, tact, and tone. It's huge in all of our relationships. And at times he seems too full of himself. He uses the word I, me, or my 32 times just in chapter 32 when he's just trying to say what he's trying to say. He does not seem to enter empathetically into Job's suffering. He seems in chapter 35, verse 12, to indicate that Job hasn't really cried out to God. What he's missing here is a crucial part of the Christian life that often we miss as well, the place of lament. We've talked about that throughout the series. Crying out to God in genuine pain, bringing our complaints to God, like Psalm 13, and this prayer and pain that leads to trust in God. Elihu doesn't seem to have a place for that. Elihu seems to lack compassion and grief for someone who's really suffering. Here's one pastor. There's something sneaky about grief. You all know this. He says it creeps up on you when you're weeding the garden or watching a hummingbird and it bashes you over the head. It sneaks into your pores and hides in the nooks and crannies of your soul only to come out of hiding when you aren't occupied with anything else. The song over the speakers in the grocery store, the coffee shop you used to go to, the street you used to walk down, the songs you used to sing, Grief can be so painful and brutally honest that most people hide from it. They bury it, or they just want to somehow make it stop. But wisdom, that's what the book of Job's about. Wisdom walks with grief. Wisdom weeps and cries out. Wisdom takes grief out of hiding and turns it around, not to find a solution, but just to grieve. Grief is the B-side of love. Only those who love much grieve much. When we sit with grief, it points us somewhere. It reminds us the world is broken. Things are not the way they should be. We are powerless to fix it. And so we cry out to a Savior who hears us, who has conquered death, who has walked through dark valleys. Elihu lacks compassion, but he does point us to God who speaks. Third, Job charged that God was apathetic. Job chapter 30, verse 20. This was the most painful thing for Job. Elihu now says in chapter 33, verse 13, 
Why do you complain that he doesn't answer you? God has spoken, Elihu says. And that, loved ones, is perhaps one of the most significant things that can be said in our day. God has spoken. Elihu says in verse 14, not just one way, but two, though man does not perceive it. What's he talking about here? To understand this, I think we need to look back in a bigger picture view at how God has spoken. Divine revelation is God's self-disclosure. A silent God is an unknown God, but God speaking is God revealing himself to us. How does God do that? Through the world he made. General revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Don't you love going up north? Especially now, the nights are darker and longer. The stars are out. And you see just an amazing picture of the glory of God. If that's big, God is that much bigger. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are seen by what he's made in the, the creation of the world. And yet, we have suppressed that truth in unrighteousness, in our sin. But God hasn't left us alone. He has spoken not only in what he made, but in his word. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In the Old Testament, God spoke sporadically by different means that he doesn't use still today. He didn't, though, leave his people who are part of his covenant in the dark. He gave them the light of his authoritative revelation. How did God speak? Well, through the prophets like Moses and David, through Malachi, who used questions and answers, Ezekiel, those bizarre acts. He spoke by the pre-incarnate Son of God in the burning bush, kids. He spoke by the angel wonderful appearing to Samson's parents. He spoke when Elijah called down fire on Mount Carmel. He spoke through a donkey, Balaam's donkey. He spoke through the judgment of the flood in Noah's day, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues on Egypt. He spoke in all these ways, kids, reminding you God's not boring. This is not dull. It was never irrelevant, and it was always adequate for the time. For God to speak is an amazing act of grace. Divine communication means divine condescension. God has expressed this by way of covenant. The revelation of God is always progressive, not from less true to more true, but from promise to fulfillment. The gospel in a bud in the Old Testament, the acorn, Genesis 3, the promise of a Messiah to crush Satan's head, that is then fulfilled in Revelation as the conquest and the victory and the triumph and the redemptive work of Christ is completed. Promise and fulfillment. We look at that as the big picture as we think of what Elihu says. What is he saying? First of all, he says God speaks very interestingly through dreams. The time that Job took place is about the same time as Abraham, a little bit before maybe. Do you remember Abimelech, the pagan king? Abraham himself takes Sarah 
and says to Abimelech, this is my sister. So he takes her to his home, and God comes to this king in a dream about the same time as Job. Elihu also says God speaks by visions of the night. Think of Daniel or Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker or Nebuchadnezzar. God speaks, he says in in Job 33, when humans are totally passive. Do you see that in verse 15? Do you remember Abraham, the covenant? God makes it with him. Abraham is really in a deep sleep. So this is the way God is speaking at this time in redemptive history. And Elihu's point is, Job, God's not silent. The problem is you're not listening. We have a hearing problem. God doesn't have a speaking problem. And God not only spoke to you, Job, through visions and dreams, but he speaks to you as well. Verse 19, how? Through your pain. What does that mean? Eliphaz also talked about the chastening purpose of suffering. But Elihu is advancing things and saying things differently. He's saying the purpose of your suffering, Job, may be preventative. It may help stop you from sliding down the slope into further sin. Remember, he's not saying Job is suffering because of a sin. He's saying, Job 36, 15, God delivers the afflicted by their affliction. He opens their ears by adversity. C.S. Lewis spoke of this. This may be where he got it from in the problem of pain. Pain is an unmasked, unmistakable evil, impossible to ignore. We can rest content in our sin and foolishness, but pain insists upon being attended to. And then this line, you know it, right? God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's what Elihu is saying. Job, God has been shouting at you as you're suffering. If we live a pain-free life, it's all about us. It can be hard for us to hear God. We've got everything we need. Personal affluence, health, comfort, we're fine. When life is good, we kind of think we don't need God, but God, in his grace, uses pain to open our ears. That's what Elihu is teaching us. That God chastens his own to bring about increased faith, trust in him as a sign of his love, not as a sign of his anger. The trial is God not punishing you, but showing you mercy because he loves you. He treats you as a son. He disciplines you in that way. He's doing surgery, Job, with infinite love to rescue you from you. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 5, that's an amazing verse. The psalmist says, it's good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. One reason God speaks to us in our pain is to keep us from pride. Job 33, 15. Job was in danger. Elihu says it in chapter 36, 21. 
beware of turning to evil, which you seem to prefer to affliction. Job must not turn to evil and sin as a way to alleviate his suffering. And loved ones, we are tempted to do just that. When we suffer, we can be prone in our hearts to turn to all manner of evil and sin, escapism, taking some of God's good gifts and abusing them to try to check out. God chastens those he loves. Why? As a means to draw them to himself, especially, chapter 33, verse 30, when they come near to destruction. Especially to bring them back from the pit. That's the heart of God speaking to you, dear Christian. God wants you to know how much he loves you. And when we suffer, our human heart is revealed. Think of a glass of water with kind of mud or dirt on the bottom, kids. When it's still, the water looks pure. But when it's shaken up, it's all sort of cloudy, isn't it? Or think of your garbage disposal. You put down coffee grinds and onions and used-up food that nobody finished eating. And if you have a plumbing problem in your house, that garbage disposal, where you think it went out to the street and it was gone, comes back up in your basement through a drain, and you see all the stuff again. That's our heart. Suffering has a way of revealing to us what's still in there. So God, in his mercy, is saying, when you suffer, what sin do you need to turn from? What gospel truth can you learn? How can you see in this context Christ who suffered judgment for you? Every providence of God in suffering that reveals our sin and points us to Jesus is a picture of his grace. Because God is saying, this is what you and I are like apart from his grace. Everything we are now is by his grace. And the seed of every sin is in our heart. And all the more dangerously that we don't see it. How is Elihu reminding people that they'll respond? Some will humble themselves in repentance, he says. Others will continue as they suffer in a downward spiral. Away from God to judgment. Loved ones, it's better to be a chastened Christian than an unrepentant, carefree sinner. Third, Elihu goes from God speaking to fourth, God's presence as we suffer. Job himself still didn't understand that God was with him. Elihu warns him in chapter 35, just because you pray doesn't mean God answers. Meaning, if your prayer is just a cry out to get stuff from God, but not by faith trusting in God, it might be more like an animal wailing to just get relief than a sinner trusting. Elihu is telling Job that, but he's also reminding him not only of the danger of that, but of the presence of a God who is with us in our pain and suffering. Look back at chapter 33. He mentions in verse 23, 
an angel, a messenger. Remember, this is pre-Abraham, right about that time. A messenger who's a mediator, who shows mercy to someone suffering, who gives a word that they would be rescued from the pit because there's a ransom provided. This is an amazing promise of the gospel. Exactly the opposite of what Job's three friends said. The friends said, you do the crime, you do the time. That's how God works. He pays you back for your sins. To get out of judgment, you do better. That's not the gospel. Job 35, 7 says, you can be as good as you like, but you never put God in your debt. He doesn't need our good deeds. Our good deeds don't give God something, loved ones. The song of the redeemed is, I sinned, but by grace it wasn't repaid to me. I've been redeemed from going into a pit. Why? Because a mediator has been found. Because there is a redeemer, a ransom, Jesus Christ, who gave his life a ransom. And because of him, in our darkest night, we have hope. Dear suffering Christian, God speaks. In these last days, Hebrews says, he has spoken to us how? By his son. God speaks grace, mercy, and forgiveness to you in Jesus today. He has robed you in Christ's righteousness. Your trial is not the absence of God's presence from you. Jesus Christ is God with you. And it says, in these last days, Hebrews, those last days began with the first coming of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The age to come has already broken in on this present evil age. But this present evil age has not yet gone away, has it? Totally. We, we see it all around us. We, we know our sin within us. And we're longing for the return of Christ to finally consummate the kingdom. Right now, it's already and not yet. Jesus already came. You already belong to him. You belong to the age to come. You grieve over your sin. That's why you repent by his grace. And we are reminded that Jesus himself is God's final word. There's no further revelation beyond him. God has spoken in his son not to just to give you information today, but to let you know who God is. He communicates himself to you in his son. He condescends by covenant and grace in his son. As we read the word, God is speaking to us today by his son. Jesus himself is speaking to you by the word. As we come to the Lord's Supper today, God is speaking. He is feeding you in the midst of your suffering, your affliction, your darkness, your grief, your lament. He is assuring you of his love for you in Jesus. As the bread is broken, as the cup is poured, we are reminded of the broken body and shed blood of our Savior. We are reminded that by the Holy Spirit, we are feeding with Christ today as we partake of the Lord's Supper. How then do we respond? How do we see the response of God's people to this amazing gospel? Fifth, 
Elihu concludes his speech by talking of the excellency of God's power. The greatness of God is a greatness of wisdom. It's a greatness of abundant mercy. And Elihu, in these last two chapters, wants Job to stop, to consider. When I see so many people, and we're all tempted to just kind of be on our phones all the time, I'm tempted toward that as well. We need to stop and consider God. Maybe your phone helps you memorize the Bible. That's a good thing. Stop and consider God. We are so packed with information, the news. The news intentionally wants you to forget God, to think that the world is just chaotic and God is not on his throne. The news does not want you to meditate on the power of a sovereign God. And that's what Elihu wants you to do. Behold, he says, over and over, behold the Lord, the greatness of the Lord, Job. I want you, Job, to respond to this greatness. How? By singing. Elihu talks about singing in this this chapter. Singing is an expression of a heart that has been captured by God's grace. When God's Holy Spirit changes your heart, you don't mumble anymore. Yes, our singing might not, all of us, be in tune, but we're not singing to impress people. We're singing to the glory of God, and we can't help it because our hearts have been changed. That's why we respond throughout the church service to to the Lord's word with singing. Pain can help us. It can refocus our lives to be what they were meant to be. The fiercer the pain, the louder our praise can be. And in the act of praise, by the Spirit of God, there's strength to endure. Have you ever noticed that as you've been singing? Maybe you don't want to sing. Maybe you don't even know if I believe these things right now. The pain is so great. But as you sing, the Lord works by his Spirit and your eyes are fixed on the beauty of Jesus. That's how Elihu concludes here. But he does so by talking of things that he would have noticed, and Job would have, in creation. He says, Job, consider the rain. Consider the thunderstorm. Consider the winter storm. Chapter 37. Snow, it's coming soon. We know that, don't we? Even though it's 70 degrees. Consider God speaking in these ways. Can you predict the weather, Job? That's where he's going. With all the technology today, can we exactly predict? No, we can't. If we can't predict the weather, even today, let alone back then, how much more incomprehensible is God himself? And if you consider that, Job, consider the hidden providence of God in your suffering. There are no answers that you can learn for why you're suffering in this way, Job, in the hidden decree of God. It's the canvas of God's providence. It hurts, but God is with you in the midst of it. God has not abandoned you, Job. God loves you, Job. You're finite. God is infinite. Elihu reminds him, verse 24, to fear the Lord. You see how he concludes? A loving, reverent fear. And what goes along with the fear of the Lord? Chapter 37, 24. 
running away from our prideful, conceited attempts at being right. Humility. Bowing before the throne of God. Learning that our suffering reveals our need for Jesus. It purges us of pride and self-righteousness. Like for Paul, the thorn in the flesh. My grace is sufficient for you, God says. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Our suffering reminds us of that. Suffering teaches us about the nature of faith. Trusting in God, trusting in Christ in the midst of the darkness. Loved ones, faith is not sight. Not yet. One day it will be. Suffering reminds us we're going to die. You and I will live just a little while longer, and then we'll die. What are we living for? Paul said, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, to become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And suffering reminds us that God is incomprehensible. That's it, loved ones. Job is done speaking. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. The next word comes from the Lord himself. Let he who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need Christ. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. In the midst of our suffering, O oh God, by your word, show us Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.